from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. It's been said that science fiction and fantasy are two different things. The line separating fictional genres can be blurry, as Rod Serling noted on The Twilight Zone in 1962. Science fiction, the improbable made possible. Fantasy, the impossible made probable. What would you have if you put these two different things together? Well, what you'd have is speculative fiction. It's an umbrella term that's kind of taken off during the last couple of decades. Lots of writers and readers prefer it to the older, narrower genre definitions. It encompasses not just sci-fi and fantasy, but magical realism, horror, counterfactual history, dystopian fiction, anything not strictly normally realistic. Harlan Ellison wrote speculative fiction across a 60-year career, publishing more than 1,700 short stories in his lifetime. He also wrote novels, such as the post-apocalyptic classic A Boy and His Dog. He also wrote movies and worked on a lot of the TV shows I watched growing up, such as The Outer Limits and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. He dreamed up The City on the Edge of Forever, which was the Star Trek episode about time travel to 1930 New York that may be the best of the original series. Deliberately could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? He knows, Doctor. He knows. Harlan Ellison died a few months ago, age 84. I spoke to him back in 2008 when he was the subject of a new documentary called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. I gave him a long, fulsome introduction, and then, Harlan, welcome to Studio 360. I'm quietly humble and proud to be here. Uh, God, does, did you, you, you forgot to mention I'm a snappy dresser and a good dancer. Well, I tried to st- stick with the objective descriptions. but uh, So I tried to avoid calling you uh, a science fiction writer. But Which you just did on purpose. No, no. I, I'm, I'm referring to uh, what I didn't do. Look, can I, can I be very... Can I give you the scoop, Toots? Please, honey. Okay. For years and years, I have been writing what is best represented as the work by Edgar Allan Poe, Franz Kafka, or the, uh, uh, the South American writer Jorge Luis Borges. What I write is a kind of twisted, I guess, fantasy. I have never written science fiction. I've occasionally used some of the furniture from that genre, but it's like calling Agatha Christie a railroad writer because she wrote (laughs) Murder on the Calais Coach. Yeah. Uh, And I cannot get the words science fiction off me. Yeah. What I do is I take the mirror, I reflect back... the human heart in conflict with itself, to quote from Faulkner. And I turn the mirror slightly askew. I think it is fascinating to talk about the way people behave and attach a fantastic element to it, the way all 
storytellers from Aesop on right. uh, uh, did it. I work in the uh, in the common grain, as they say. You mentioned Poe, and and ob- looking at your output over this last half century, there's something 19th century about it, just in terms of its incredible size. Why so much? Well, because I'm a writer, kid. That's what I do. You know, if I were if I were a plumber. And you said, how many toilets have you fixed? And I said, 10,000. You wouldn't say, boy, what a prolific plumber. What the hell else am I supposed to do? I'm a writer. I, I read in various uh, biographical sketches of you so many things, that sound, some of which sound hard to believe. When you ran away from home, when you left home at 13, did you actually join the carnival? Absolutely. You know, things sound improbable from a distance. When you get close to them, you find that... Uh, Einstein said, things should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as running away and joining a rock band. All there was was the acoustic guitar. And if you wanted to join a band, you had to go and find Glenn Miller. But as a kid, I had read a book called Toby Tyler, or 10 Weeks with a Circus. And in my time, kids ran away and they joined the circus. But I couldn't find one, but there was a carnival. So I joined the Carney, and I traveled with them for about six weeks until we got busted and all wound up in jail in Kansas City. And my mother and father, who, of course, were frantic, they were lovely, lovely people, they were frantic. They hired uh, the Pinkerton Detective Agency to find me. And Pinkerton sent out what they called a Dodger, and a Dodger was a handbill. Have you seen this child in my picture there? And here I was standing in, in the lockup in KC, the rest of the Carney having been sprung except for me and the geek, and uh, uh, and and a turnkey came around and saw me and thought he'd match the picture. And he went back and told the desk sergeant. Desk sergeant came in, took a look at me, called Cleveland, and Cleveland sent out a Pinkerton agent on the train. And he came and picked me up and took me home. I mean, just all all of those things, like joining the Carvey, in, in, you know, the lockup, the Pinkerton guard. It, it it does sound like an entirely other era. Oh, it was. But looking back, it was a glorious, adventure-filled time, and, and it enriched my, my youth. It also made me tough enough so that when I got to, uh, to college, however briefly I was there, and they, they tried to, uh, to bully me, I would just punch a guy in a kisser and, you know, or hit him over the head with a brick, and it was, it was terrific. Well, speaking of, of your love of rich bygone eras, I'd love to have you read a bit from your story, Jefty, about a boy stuck in a time warp. I happen to have it in a book of mine called Shatterday. Let me find it here. Well, here's a section after uh, 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 trying to explain this little boy, Jefty, who uh, his, his friend grows up, and Jefty and he, who were the same age when they were children, he's now an adult, sort of watching over Jefty, and Jefty is getting, has a radio that brings him radio programs from when they were children. Jack Armstrong, Captain Midnight, Tom Mix. And there is a section in the story in which I try to explain this. Hume denied the existence of an absolute space in which each thing has its place. Borges denies the existence of one single time in which all events are linked. Jefty received radio programs from a place that could not, in logic, in the natural scheme of the space-time universe, as conceived by Einstein, exist. But that wasn't all he received. He got mail-order premiums that no one was manufacturing. He read comic books that had been defunct for three decades. He saw movies with actors who had been dead for 20 years. He 
was the receiving terminal for endless joys and pleasures of the past that the world had dropped along the way. On its headlong suicidal flight toward new tomorrows, the world had raised its treasure house of simple happinesses, had poured concrete over its playgrounds, had abandoned its elfin stragglers, and all of it was being impossibly, miraculously shunted back into the present through Jefty, revivified, updated, the traditions maintained but contemporaneous, Jefty was the unbidding Aladdin whose very nature formed the magic lampness of his reality, and he took me into his world with him because he trusted me. That's Harlan Ellison reading from his short story, Jefty is Five. It's interesting to me, as you were becoming the big deal that you are in, 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 the, in the 1960s, that the kind of writing you do was suddenly acquiring cachet from, from Vonnegut to Borges to the science fiction writers of whom you don't include yourself. What, what was it about that moment that, that sort of allowed the world and the establishment to say, hey, this is pretty cool? Uh, well, yeah, you know, as Judge Judy would say, uh, is not an answer. Um, uh, I'm hard pressed to be able to do that kind of semiotic analysis. I don't know. I suspect it was all in the lieu of Jack Kerouac and the beat generation and getting away from World War II and the middle class, uh, outlook in America that, that, that stayed stodgy electronic hum of the Republican world. Uh, it was a time of upheaval. It's easy for far-right wingers uh, of the of the O'Reilly Coulter breed uh, to 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 condemn those years and those decades as nothing but a bunch of idiot flower children streaking in the nude. But in truth, the seeds of everything of value, I think, that we that we managed to hold on to today, in the in the face of uh, of an ongoing stupidification of America. <laughs> Uh, are things that were brought to 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 largeness in the 60s and 70s. And I hit right at that moment, and everybody gets their 15 minutes, and I've been very, very lucky. My 15 minutes has lasted since 1955, 56. And though uh, <laughs> somebody, somebody said, you're not so famous. I, I said your name to one of my pals, and he said, who? And then I said, Britney Spears. He said, oh, yeah. And I said, oh, God. I said, I'm, uh, you know, if I sought the approbation of monkeys, I, I imagine I would be concerned about that. But anybody who needs to know my name will also know the name of Guy de Maupassant or Camille uh, uh, or Babe Ruth or anybody else who did what they did on their own terms in their own lifetime and made a mark. Let's listen to a little bit of Eric Nelson's film about you, Dreams with Sharp Teeth. You know, people, people say to me, even Susan says to me, my God, does everything make you angry? I say, yeah, everything makes me angry. And, and they say, well, you know, you should be a little mellow, get a little mellow. And I say, oh, really? Gee, I had never thought of that. Get a little mellow. Woo, what an epiphany. Like, I enjoy this? You think I enjoy getting up angry every morning, going to bed angry every night, to go through the day with the veins standing out, the bolts unscrewing in my neck? Jesus Christ, I would give anything to be able to be as mellow and cool as most people. I'd be, a, you know, one of the slaves, and, you know, the walking dead, but it would be a relief. Give me, give me six months as a walking dead, and I'll never say anything angry again. Uh. That is Harlan Ellison in <laughs> Dreams with Sharp Teeth. Now, there you say, oh, you'd like to be mellow. Have you ever tried to do anything about that? 
Yeah, I'm mellow most of the time. Well, no, you're you are. I even in this in the time we've talked, I can see that there are, there are certainly there's a there's a big look. First of all, the word rant has been <laughs> co opted by the imbecile internet. A rant used to mean one thing. A panegyric is another. A guardilu is a third. I'm a passionate person. Yeah. I care about things, but at least I have enjoyed myself. Harlan Ellison, I have entirely enjoyed this. Thank you very much. You are a cutie pie, and I and my and thank your mother for the chicken soup, and my wife and I clutch your antennae and 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 enwrap your cilia with joy. Yikes! Thanks. Yikes. As you've just heard, Harlan Ellison was a world class talker and friendly guy, and he's even more entertaining in my full unedited hour long conversation with him, which you can find and listen to on studio360.org. Coming up. Christian Nairn is the actor who played the only completely likable character on Game of Thrones. But what he really wants to do is play dance music. Hodor. Hodor Speaks. That's next on Studio 360. Hodor. In this hour of Studio 360, we are exploring facets of speculative fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, anything otherworldly. Fans of the novelist George R.R. Martin have been waiting seven years for the next, presumably final installment of his fantasy series, A Song of Ice and Fire. That idea, a multi-novel series, never sat well with the consistently productive and considerably more concise Harlan Ellison. It only took Dostoevsky one book to do Crime and Punishment. Why do these blowhards, these bloviating nitwits, need six books to talk about dragons? (laughs) Bloviating or not, Martin's series of novels and its TV adaptation, Game of Thrones, is the most popular fantasy franchise this side of Middle-earth and Hogwarts. One of the most popular characters on Game of Thrones was played by Christian Nairn, such a perfect name for an actor in a medieval fantasy. It was a difficult part because he only spoke one word and had to use that one word to express everything, panic, anger, confusion, joy. In 2015, our colleague Sean Ramosvaram talked with him about playing, maybe, the oddest big role in big-time TV history. I'm Christian Nairn, and I'm an actor and DJ um, best known for my role probably in Game of Thrones. And who do you play again? I play Hodor. (laughs) You just want to hear me say that. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Even if you've never watched Game of Thrones, there's a fair chance you've heard of Hodor. He stands out because he's really big, He's really lovable, and he only says one thing. Hold on. 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 sweet giant. Hold on. The one-dimensionality of Hodor makes him really malleable as a walking, hardly talking meme. And the internet has a ton of fun with him. Even search engines get in on it. When you Google Hodor, the official Google search results just say Hodor over and over like 40 times. Hodor had no idea. It says like Google? 50, yeah, Google did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean. It's bizarre. It is bizarre. It is bizarre. It is bizarre. That stuff really takes me to the fair. I Googled the idiom takes me to the fair, but my results were inconclusive. 
Hodor belongs to a special league of TV characters that have found life far beyond their TV worlds online. It's him, it's Sailor Moon, it's the entire cast of The Office. There are GIFs and supercuts and memes for days dedicated to these people. Just imagine how much power you wield when you're one of the most beloved characters on the most pirated TV show in the history of the universe, the internet's favorite TV show. Christian Nairn is well aware of his unique position, and he's using it to promote his other passion. Hodor is really into house. Christian can't stop and won't stop either one. Not the Hodor, not the house. Even if everyone's constantly second-guessing his true love. When I first started acting, yeah. um, people would people would treat me and they would say, how are you going to do this? You're, you're, a, you're a DJ? You know, how are you going to act? You don't know how to act? And I'm like, give me some faith, guys. Give, give me some credit. You know, I went to drama, I went to drama college. You know what I, mean? I, I know how to do this. Yeah. So I had to prove myself, and then after this, I, I, it's sort of like, yeah, so he's DJing now. He's one of these celebrity DJs. Uh, how can well, you DJ when you're an actor? And I'm like, really? <laughs> I don't I don't want to do this all over again. <laughs> you know, yeah. just continually proving that I can do things. Right. I'm not just a one-trick pony. <laughs> Hodor. Hodor! Don't, Hodor. Where do you live? Um... <laughs> I don't really live anywhere. Yeah. Um, I live in Belfast still. Okay, and where do you do most of the shooting for the show? In Belfast. Is that how it happened? You were there and you said... No, no, no. I mean, I actually auditioned for a movie called Hot Fuzz. I didn't get the part, so I just kind of forgot about it. Uh-huh. Uh, and maybe five or six years later, I got this random call wanting me to do like one tape, and apparently the, the casting director just couldn't imagine anybody else for this part. And like, what does he mean to you now that you've done it for four or five it years? It feels like a friend. Yeah. You know, I'm, I like the guy as a, as a person. If I'm going to talk from like a schizo, uh, I'll miss him if he's not in my life. So, like, when the show ends, you'll inevitably start to miss him. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I missed him last year. I wasn't in right? The, you know, I missed the costume, even though it smells. <laughs> what does it smell like? Death. <laughs> smells of eight thousand corpses. <laughs> it looks terribly uncomfortable. How, most, how bad is it? Right. For season, I mean, what is it? Like, can you describe what the costume it's is? It's an inch, inch thick of wool, which was horribly warm in the first place. And then in season three, you'll see us slaughtering rabbits at the campfire. That's not how you skin a rabbit. I know how to skin a rabbit. Not by the looks of it. So for continuity, they thought, I know, <laughs> we'll add 70 dead rabbits to that. Because um, it almost fits like at the end of his journey. Yeah. And like you have to do this yourself, little guy. Yeah. I can't help you anymore. And that was really emotional for me. It was almost like letting the child go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um if if the producers of the show or the writers of the show came up to you or George came up to you and said, "Like, hey, you know, we really want to know since you've embodied this character so well, what would you like to see happen in season 6? Is is there something in the back of your head that you'd really love to to see happen for Hodor?" Um I think he deserves a holiday. <laughs> Some sort of spa treatment on his back. So if you could ask for something more practical, is there something? <laughs> I just think you would like to know about, about well, not he, I would like to know a bit more about his past. Yeah. Why Why he only says that one word. And yeah. Just, just for definite. Yeah. I've always wanted to know. 
That's Christian Nairn talking with Sean Ramosvaram in 2015. Since that interview originally aired, Game of Thrones viewers did learn why Hodor only says that one word in one of the most memorable and memeable moments of the series. By the way, that Google thing does not work anymore. And as for our Studio 360 alumnus, Sean, these days, every day, you can hear him on Today Explained, the Vox newscast that he hosts. When I was growing up in the 1980s, I was seen as a girl and treated as a girl, and it didn't really matter to me. I was androgynous. I just thought of myself as a kid. Evan Urquhart is a writer who lives in Northern California. It was only when I started getting closer to puberty, when I started to realize that I wasn't like other girls. He recently wrote about his childhood for a feature in Slate magazine called Spark Notes, which is about people's light bulb moments of sexuality. I wasn't allowed to watch much TV, so books were at the center of how I saw the world, and, of course, also how I saw myself. There were books for girls that I tried to decipher like alien hieroglyphics, trying to figure out how I was supposed to be in the world. Okay, when did I get so hideous? Jessica Wakefield groaned. Do you remember the Sweet Valley High series of books? She leaned in toward her bedroom mirror as her twin sister, Elizabeth, rolled her eyes. Seriously, Liz, it's like somebody snuck into my room last night and whacked me with the ugly stick. Yeah, that happened, Elizabeth said, digging through a pile of clothes on Jessica's bed. Both twins were beautiful, with blonde hair and aquamarine eyes, and they lived soapy teen dream lives in their perfect California suburb. Both Wakefield twins were popular and dated cute boys, but even the wicked twin, Jessica, was pretty chaste. I don't care what you think, Lila, Jessica said, tossing her hair back. She gave herself a confident, steadying look in the mirror, hoping her crazy heartbeat would chill out before she overheated. Bruce Patman is going to be mine eventually. And now that we're in homecoming court together, I'm that much closer. These sorts of books, written for young girls about slightly older girls, were where I learned about how girls thought, what girls were supposed to be. The relevant lessons on teenage girlhood, as far as I could tell, were waiting until the time was right and not letting yourself be pressured by boys. The details of what you might be pressured into were left out, but the books made it clear that sex changes everything. I had both girls and boys as friends, but had no romantic interest in boys. And slowly, I could feel a gulf opening up between my experience and that of the other girls. And so I studied their literature avidly in an attempt to pass as one of them. But then, in sixth grade, I got my adult library card. I remember wandering into the adult stacks for the first time and seeing the name Asimov in the A section in huge letters across dozens of titles. I took at least two or three of them down and brought them to the desk to check them out. I discovered they were books about what Asimov had called positronic robots, mechanical humanoid servants who could converse with humans and had something like consciousness. Hardwired into their robot brains were these three laws, as described by Asimov himself in an old interview. The first law is as follows. A robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey 
orders given it by qualified personnel unless those orders violate rule number one. Uh, rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence unless that violates rules one or two. When I got home, I cracked open The Robots of Dawn, which was the third in Asimov's series of robot novels, but I didn't know that, and I started to read. Bailey remained standing, laboring to keep his face unsurprised. Roth might have warned him, but he had not. He had clearly chosen his words deliberately to give no sign. The official was a woman. There was no reason for this not to be. Any official might be a woman. The secretary general might be a woman. There were women on the police force, even a woman with the rank of captain. It was just that, without warning, one didn't expect it in any given case. Instantly, I identified with the protagonist in a way I couldn't with the teen girl characters I read. He's called Elijah Bailey, the hero of the earlier robot books. He's a married detective, struggling with agoraphobia, who travels to a foreign planet called Aurora, where the sex is casual and monogamy is non-existent. He has to solve a mystery with his humanoid robot partner, Daniel, and figure out who has destroyed a valuable robot named Jander, the only other humanoid robot like Daniel in existence. He interviews the robot's last owner, Gladia Delmar. Gladia was silent. Bailey said, If you don't tell me, Gladia, I will have to tell you. I told you earlier that I am not in a position to spare your feelings. Gladia remained silent, the corners of her lips whitening with pressure. It must be someone, Gladia, and your sorrow over Jander's loss is extreme. You sent Daniil out because you could not bear to look at him for the reminder of Jander that his face brought. If I'm wrong in deciding that it was Jander Parnell... He paused a moment, then said harshly, If the robot Jander Parnell was not your lover, say so! This might have been the first book I read which had sex in it. There was sex with people, and sex with robots, and the values were 180 degrees from the kind of values in the books for girls I had been reading. Sex is pleasurable. It's something the characters engage in at will. It's something the male characters, in particular, are expected to want and not feel any particular shame about wanting. And, of course, there's a sex scene. He was holding her again as before, but there was no blouse, and her skin was warm and soft, and his hand moved slowly down the slope of shoulder blade and down the hidden ridges of her ribs. The married Detective Bailey desires Gladia. He falls asleep and dreams about her. And when he wakes up, she's there in his bed, catering to his desires without him even having to ask her. It's this transparent scene of wish fulfillment. There was a total aura of reality about it. All of his senses were engaged. He smelled her hair, and his lips tasted the faint, faint salt of her skin. And now, somehow, they were no longer standing. Had they lain down? Or were they laying down from the start? And what had happened to the light? He felt the mattress beneath him and the cover over him. Darkness. And she was still in his arms, and her body was bare. He was shocked awake. Gladia? If I wasn't transgender before I started that book, I was by the time I finished it. I had no concept of what an adult transgender man was. The world viewed me as a girl, and I accepted that. I had no idea that there was anything else I could be. 
All I knew was that I preferred old-fashioned books by men for men, or adolescent boys, to books for and about girls. I identified with their male protagonists in a way I couldn't with female characters, however hard I tried. So, by day, I was trying to absorb and mimic the attitudes of straight girls around me, crushing on boys, waiting to be noticed by boys, and sort of chastely desiring a kiss or a dance, but nothing more. And at night, when I was alone, I would imagine myself a sci-fi hero, out for sex and adventure, with women as secondary characters either falling at my feet or following my lead. I dreamed of becoming a man, wished I could be a man, but I pushed the thought of actually transitioning away, afraid of what people would think. I married, I lived my life. Then one weekend, I was home alone with nothing to do, my wife away at a conference, and I decided just once I'd look seriously into transitioning. After that, I believed, it would be out of my system forever. It didn't work out that way. The moment I allowed the dream to become real, I found I couldn't force it back into a dream again. I came out as trans to my wife the day after she got home. I began counseling a few weeks later and started hormone therapy the next year. Once I transitioned, I realized I'd largely avoided books with strong female characters. When there were no strong women to choose to identify with, I didn't have to reckon with any implications of my feeling closer to a man. In this way, I absorbed all these messages which were aimed at men and boys. Messages about being the desirer rather than the desired, and of proving oneself through one's sexual conquest and prowess, and of seeing sex as something to take when offered without any fear of emotional or physical harm. These aren't necessarily positive messages, and combined with the more passive messages we direct at women, they've resulted in a lot of negative things for women, a lot of male entitlement and selfishness. Like other men, I've had to re-examine and unlearn a lot of that. Some trans men talk about feeling like newcomers to patriarchy, but I've always been a native. And for that, I guess I can thank Isaac Asimov, whose impact on my life has been profound and profoundly complicated. People who are young people today know that when they're middle-aged, life will be nothing like what it is now. And science fiction gives them an opportunity to try on different societies. His books and his characters were my companions at a time when I lacked any comfortable place in the real world. They left me more curious about science and more hopeful for creative, humane solutions to social ills. But his books failed to project a future where women and men could truly be equal. Asimov helped make me the man I am, but not the man I want to be. Evan Urquhart is a regular contributor to Slate, where a version of this essay originally appeared as part of its Spark Notes series. Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez produced that story. The excerpts from Isaac Asimov's The Robots of Dawn were read by Bill Rogers, and The Sweet Valley High reading was by Emily Mulholland. Coming up, Colson Whitehead won a Pulitzer Prize for Underground Railroad, counterfactual but unquestionably literary fiction. Before that, what was he up to? I basically wanted to write The Black Shining or The Black Salem's Lot. The irresistible appeal of horror. If you took any Stephen King title and put the black in front of it, that's what I wanted to do. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360.
Most of Colson Whitehead's novels are speculative fiction, the mega-genre encompassing sci-fi and fantasy and other non-realist fiction of various kinds. He won the Pulitzer Prize for The Underground Railroad, his great counterfactual historical novel about a literal underground railroad. But he sometimes writes fiction that is decidedly pulpier. In 2011, he published a novel about zombies called Zone One. And Zone One is not some postmodern take on the horror genre. It is smart and funny, sure, but it's also the real deal. Brains are eaten and the living go to war against the undead. When Zone One was just out, I asked Colson to join me for a live Studio 360 show. So, uh, so howdy. Um, Zone One takes place uh, after the end of the world. People are pretty much bummed out, uh, more than usual. They're walking around with PASD, or post-apocalyptic stress disorder. Um, and when they get really bummed out, they can look back upon last night, the last sane night in the world before everything became really horrible. And Mark Spitz, our protagonist, um, not the actual Mark Spitz, it's an ironic nickname in quotes, uh, is thinking about his last night story. When he was six, he walked in on his mother giving his father oral pleasure. A public television program about the precariousness of life in the Serengeti, glimpsed in passing, had introduced him to dread, and it had been eating at him the previous few nights. Bad dreams, the hyenas and their keening. He needed to slip into his parents' king-sized bed, as he had when he was very young, before he had been banished to his own big-boy bed in accordance with the latest child-rearing philosophies. It was forbidden, but he decided to visit his parents. He padded down the hall, past the green eye of the carbon monoxide detector, that ever-vigilant protector against invisible evil, and the bathroom and the linen closet. He opened the door to the master bedroom... And there she was, gobbling up his father. His father stopped his unsettling growls and shouted for his son to leave. The incident was never referred to again, and it became the first occupant of that corner in his brain's attic that he reserved for the great mortifications. The first occupant, but not the last. It was, naturally, to that night his thoughts fled when on his return from Atlantic City on last night. He opened the door to his parents' bedroom and witnessed his mother's grisly ministrations to his father. She was hunched over him, gnawing away with ecstatic fervor on a flap of his intestine, which, in the flicker of the television, adopted a phallic aspect. He thought immediately of when he was six, not only because of the similar tableau before him, but because of that tendency of the human mind in periods of duress to seek refuge in more peaceful times, such as a childhood experience as a barricade against horror. That was the start of his last night's story. Everybody had one. Wilson Whitehead reading from his new best-selling novel, Zone One. Wow, you, Freud called it the primal scene. You, you, you have one-upped Freud. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't, I think, foresee the zombie epidemic or zombie plague. He was yeah. working with... One of his had. many insufficiencies. Yes. Yes. Um, I guess I have that in my corner. There you go. So you're a MacArthur Foundation genius. Uh, 
And now your now your characters are eating each other's colons. Um, how did you end up uh, writing a horror novel? I didn't have much of a choice. I was a bit of a shut-in as a kid. Uh, other kids like to go and leave their houses. I just spend my afternoons watching The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits and reading Stephen King. And until I got to college, I basically wanted to write The Black Shining or The Black Salem's Lot. If you took any Stephen King title and put the black in front of it, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so for me, I always knew I would write a horror novel eventually. And... Um, uh, from watching zombie movies as a kid, I've, I've had zombie anxiety dreams for the last 30 years. And I had one that led to the idea for this book. Really? Uh, yeah, well, some normal people have anxiety dreams about being late for an exam or they haven't uh, prepared for the big presentation. No, the escaping thing I, I've had, but specifically escaping zombies? Oh, yeah, that they're fast, they're slow, they talk, they get me, or I escape. Um, so this is my life. And actually, um, since I've been on book tour, people have come up to me and said, like, I have zombie dreams, too. Um, so maybe a support group is in order. Um, but the idea for Zone 1 came because, uh, I guess, the summer of 2009, I had house guests out in Long Island. And uh, uh, it, the house has very thin walls, and you can hear everything that happens. Uh, so I woke up one morning, they were laughing and playing, and I was in a bad mood, and I just really wanted them to go. But you can't really say that to your house guests. Um, uh, it's a, a no-sex house, which I try to tell people before they come. Because uh, you can hear everything. You can keep on your shoes, you can smoke, but just don't have sex. Yes, the spare right. room is available. Uh, it's a no-sex house. If you bring corn, uh, we'll put it on the grill. Um, <laughs> and so I heard them laughing, and I, didn't, I couldn't join in because I was sort of in a depressive episode. And so I willed myself back to sleep and had a dream that I was in Manhattan. That's why I was a dream, to live in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was a nightmare. Um, and I wanted to go into, into the living room, but I wasn't sure if they had swept the zombies out. And uh, then I woke up and I was like, that's a real consideration after the apocalypse, how do you get rid of the zombies? They, they stick around like bad house guests. And that became a book. Gotcha. I, I, I remember a decade ago when my children were small and, and just being amazed that they both, as six, eight, nine-year-olds, completely were familiar with zombie protocol, like what killed them, what didn't kill them, how they lived, how they got that way. And I didn't understand how this information had propagated into my you know little kids' Brains, why is why did zombies, do you think, the last whatever decade or so become so interesting to them, to you, to the world? Well, when I was writing the book two years ago, my daughter was like, I know zombies, I've seen Scooby-Doo. And she thought that I should, I should uh, title my book Awake of the Undead Army, um, which was you know, a little longer than Zone 1. Um, I can only talk about my weird orientation. And my interpretation of the zombie horror is that Everything that you've suspected is true, which is that your friends, your family, and everyone in, in the community is a monster who wants to eat you. <laughs> so they've been pretending for decades, um, biding their time, and then one day you wake up and they want to eat your face. So that speaks to my sort of Freudian troubles, I guess. Um, and that's what animates my version of the zombie. And voila, it's a bestseller. Now that I guess I'm not alone. There you go. Um, your parents... 
I'll let you watch George Romero? They, they let you do what you wanted in terms of cultural menus? Well, if you allow your kids to go to Crazy Eddie's and rent the big stack of Betamax uh, tapes every Friday, you won't have to talk to them. So, um, and we were allowed to see any kind of R-rated movie. I saw Clockwork Orange when I was like 10. And I remember, as a family uh, evening at home, and I remember being like, Mommy, what's happening? What are they doing to that woman? And her being like, it's a comment on society. And um, <laughs> uh, you so, had intellectual parents. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it's you know it's it's during my work, and I think it helped, even though it was not particularly appropriate. Yeah, how about with your own kid who is eight? She's seven. So, yeah. Are there things you won't let her watch? Well, I I want to show her. Uh, all the stuff I love, like Alien. I do want to show her Tom the Dead, so another 10 years for that. Um, I try to stick with the herd in terms of like, the Brooklyn parenting advice. I don't want to be stoned to death in the street. So um, that means not a lot of drinking uh, while I'm pushing the stroller. Uh, so I'm trying to stick with uh, the community standards. That's Colson Whitehead. His next novel will be published next summer, and it's called The Nickel Boys. So Colson Whitehead said he aspired to be the black Stephen King. In fact, science fiction themes have been part of African-American pop culture for a while, especially in the tradition known as Afrofuturism. The way I always define it is the simple premise that black people are going to continue to exist into the future. I talked about Afrofuturism with the poet and sociologist Eve Ewing last year. And then once you take that basic premise, you can work through all the implications of how and why and what that means. And it's a premise that on the one hand, um, it, the, the simplicity is deceptive because uh, when you are from a diasporic people who um, have at every different stage in history, especially throughout American history, face the, the essential threat of annihilation, then the premise that you continue to exist is actually kind of radical. Um, it's also radical in the context of a science fiction culture in which black people often are completely absent. People of color often are completely absent. So both within kind of the literary or popular culture tradition and then on this fundamental premise, to me it's actually kind of a radical, fascinating idea. The Afrofuturist idea has been explored in fiction and movies and comic books and music. Back in the 1930s, as a black American jazz musician named Herman Poole Blount told the story, friendly aliens from Saturn contacted him and asked him to channel the truths of the universe through music. A couple of decades later, Blount renamed himself Sun Ra and formed this elaborately costumed big band called the Orchestra. Now it's spelled A-R-K-E-S-T-R-A. The idea of an arc is really interesting when you think about travel and of being sort of taken away to a better place. Trisha Rose is a professor at Brown University, and she says that this Afrofuturist fantasy of escaping Earth probably goes back to slavery. The listeners may may wonder, God, what does everything have to do with slavery? But but I think that there is something about that watershed moment around a sense of how can I see myself somewhere else? Can I either get back home or can I get to another place? The music is different here. The vibrations are different. Not like Planet Earth. 
find the very sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to from planet Earth to understand. We set up a colony for black people here. He's like a space-age pharaoh. And again, I think this is, this is very important, a kind of pan-African vision of remembering your origins and imagining a future that honors those but moves forward. Well, all right. Start ya. Citizens of the universe. Recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramid. George Clinton is, is another fairly extraordinary figure, and in the mid-1960s, he starts Parliament, which is a doo-wop group, but eventually it evolves into what we now know as Parliament Funkadelic. Put a glide in your stride and a dip in your hip and come on to the mothership. Given my own particular age, I actually happen to remember it really, really well and went to see Parliament at that point. But on the mothership connection... An actual huge silver spaceship, which is on the album, was actually on the stage. And, you know, he emerges from it out of a drop-down hatch, you know, off the front of this huge spaceship with all of this smoke and huge silver boots and just unbelievable costumes. And, you know, there was just such a sense of you being transported. And the idea that there were sort of almost like superheroes, like an alternative species of of people of African descent were coming to tell you that basically things were okay, <laughs> you know? We're going to reclaim the pyramids while we're having a really good time. One of the things that has always plagued black music, and this is really true for hip-hop, is the way in which it begins to stand in for black alien status in the society. Um, They write stories that imagine the world as it might be if these circumstances weren't there, if I were not so disempowered, but instead I could, as Lil Wayne says, play basketball with the moon. Lupe Fiasco has a fabulous song, Daydreaming, which has Jill Scott singing the lyrical chorus, but the poetic rhyme of it is all about imagining himself as a huge robot that is a building, a walking building. You know, saying that there are street dealers at his feet and, you know, watching the cops from a distance because he's this embodied building that can can move around, can literally, you know, escape, walk away. A building of people in a housing project walking away. And the crackheads beg at about the lower leg. There's crooked police that station at the knees, and they do drive bys like up and down the thighs. And there's a car chase going on at the waist. Keep a vest on my chest. I'm sitting in my room as I'm looking out the face. Something to write about. I still got some damage from fighting the White House. Just a dream. Imagining places where, as Sun Ra would say, that there is not the sounds of guns, where there is much less frustration, when the vibrations make people feel good and connected, is really important. Having a place of connection, right? Mothership connection, where people get together and they care about each other. That's what really matters. That's Trisha Rose, whom we talked to in 2008 about Afrofuturist music. She teaches Africana Studies at Brown University. Derek John produced our story. (laughs) 
And that's it for this episode of Studio 360. But before we go, we want to leave you with one last bit of Afrofuturism. Back before Janelle Monet became a famous star in movies like Moonlight and Hidden Figures, she was making wonderful genre-bending Afrofuturist pop music. And back then, in 2010, she performed at a Studio 360 live show, fully in character as her mythological android. Here she is, singing Sincerely Jane. Left the city, my mama, she said, don't come back home. These kids won't kill each other, they lost their mind, they go. They quit in school making babies and can barely read some clothes. To that war, Lord have mercy on them. One, two, three, four, your cousin is round his cell and door. What a daddy, your uncle is walking around drunk out. Babies with babies and they tears keep burning while the dreams go down the drain. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chubb. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. You are a cutie pie. Thank you, and thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. I don't think of him as a villain. I think of him as a very strange friend. When she was a budding young filmmaker, Sandy Tan met somebody who seemed like the perfect mentor, but turned out to be kind of a nightmare. And his friendship was both a gift and a curse. Shirkers, her great movie about a great movie that never was. Next time on Studio 360.